0: listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker.
1: What I will say is right now the Senate is the most privileged nursing home in the country. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell has done some great things, and he deserves credit. But you have to know when to leave. That is why I'm strongly in support of term limits in this country. I think that we do need mental competency tests for anyone over the age of 75. I I wouldn't care if they did them over the age of 50.
0: That was Nikki Haley on Fox News earlier this week. She was responding to an incident in which Mitch McConnell froze up in the middle of a press conference, raising questions about his health. McConnell is 81, which makes him only slightly older than the two leading presidential candidates, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But McConnell isn't even the oldest person in the Senate. This past June, Dianne Feinstein turned 90. Susan Glasser recently wrote about the octogenarians running America for her weekly column on NewYorker.com. Susan, who you might recognize from the Political Scenes Friday roundtable, is here today to explain how we ended up with an elderly ruling class and to discuss what role age might play in the 2024 election. Thank you so much for being here, Susan.
1: Oh, great. Thanks for having me.
0: So twice now, Senator Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has sort of frozen up during press conferences, um, staring blankly for more than 30 seconds after being asked a question. And, um, you know, his aides basically had to to step in and and help him. What's happening to Senator McConnell?
1: Well, you know, it's been a pretty dramatic and pretty public decline for the Senate minority leader, the leader of the Republicans. He's the longest serving leader of any party in history in the Senate. Uh, He broke the record uh, just in January, actually, of this year. So he has this incredible sort of lifetime career moment in January. And then just a couple of months later in March, he fell down As he was going to a fundraiser at Irony of Ironies, the former Trump Hotel in Washington, Mitch McConnell's 81 years old, and he has had since then just a a very dramatic decline. He's been pretty sparse with the health information that he has actually given out. Basically, he got a concussion. He was actually in, in rehab for some period of time. He's returned to his job in the Senate, but he is visibly diminished uh, and suffering in a way that just was not the case even a few months ago. So, you know, his office is saying something like uh, lightheadedness is the explanation for this. Uh, but it's it's just visibly disconcerting to see somebody in the middle of a press conference literally just freeze up and be unable to respond. This time it was for more than 30 seconds. And so, you know, it's inevitably raised questions about McConnell's continued leadership and and his health and age going forward.
0: And the most recent time that he froze up, wasn't it right after being asked a question about whether he plans to run for re-election?
1: Well, that's right, irony of ironies. He he's he's up for reelection, uh, you know, basically in the next midterm election, so in the twenty twenty six election cycle. So there's a, a few years to go. You know, Washington is an unforgiving town. Uh once you have even the, the appearance of a being a lame duck in any way. I'm gonna mix the metaphors here, but the uh <laughs> the the knives are out. So you
0: recently wrote um, a piece about this. And in that piece, you say that McConnell's decline comes at an awkward time for Republicans um, because they've basically been planning on making President Biden's age a major talking point in the 2024 election. I mean, do you think that what's happening to McConnell is going to make them shift strategies in order to kind of... um, distract people from this question of aging politicians? Or are you mostly just anticipating like a lot of hypocrisy in terms of one party saying that, you know, Biden's too old while protecting McConnell?
1: Well, look first of all let 's just say that the optics are not good right it It certainly you know requires some uh, gymnastics to make an age based case against Joe Biden at the same time. Mitch McConnell is the leader of uh, the senate g o p because whatever you think of joe biden it 's hard to argue that at the moment at least that he is not a you know practically a picture of. Physical health uh, when compared with Mitch McConnell, much more vigorous, often photographed exercising, bike riding, things like that. Uh, and that is a contrast with McConnell. However, here's what I would say like, assuming that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, and uh, let's be real, he appears to be not only stampeding toward the Republican nomination, but so far ahead, it's hard to say that he has any viable challengers at the moment for the Republican nomination. Donald Trump. There's maybe one person he, he lows in politics more than Joe Biden, and that's Mitch McConnell. Uh, and the reason is he, he sees McConnell as sort of a traitor, a turncoat. Uh, they have not famously have not spoken with each other since Mitch McConnell, uh, went to the Senate floor in December of 2020 and congratulated Joe Biden for winning the election that Donald Trump still untruthfully claims he lost. Uh, There's nobody that Trump excoriates more than Mitch McConnell. Uh, You know, when I did two interviews with him uh, for the book that, that my husband Peter and I did last year on Trump Literally, he just unprovoked, you know, in the middle of conversations would, would bring up McConnell and start attacking him. Uh, as you know, he frequently posts on social media about him. He's attacked McConnell's wife who served in his own cabinet. And, you know, what, what many people see as a series of racist attacks based on her ethnic background. So, like, let's be real. It's not that, that Donald Trump is going to give up his attacks on Joe Biden's age because of Mitch McConnell. He's much more likely simply to say that McConnell shouldn't serve anymore. So I would I would expect that certainly from Trump's most vociferous supporters, um, you're likely just to see them say, get rid of Mitch, too.
0: Have you seen Trump trying to make the age argument against Biden as well? I I vaguely remember um, some quote where he basically said, like, oh, Biden isn't that old, like, you know, 80 is just, you know, when you're just getting started or something like that.
1: Oh, no, it's definitely at the core of his campaign. Uh, remember, he first labeled uh, Joe Biden, sleepy Joe Biden during the 2020 campaign. In fact, it's uh, another sort of Trump, uh, arguably brilliant marketing job. He, he took Biden, who at the time, you know, this was four years ago, I think he appeared to be much more vigorous than Trump. And that was probably an advantage that Biden had in that campaign. But even back in the 20 20- Twenty race, you had Trump labeling him Sleepy Joe Biden. And uh, I think that that impression of Biden has really taken hold. And by the way, among Democrats and independents, as well as Republicans, there's just now a very broad consensus, if you look at the polls, uh, that Americans have just come to the conclusion that Biden is too old to serve another term as president. And that is probably one of the biggest single factors impeding his uh, bid for a second term.
0: Yeah, you mentioned this in your piece that there was this poll where voters were asked basically what the first word that springs to mind is when, um, you know, Biden is brought up. And I think the largest percentage of responses said, you know, old, outdated, elderly, aging, dementia. I mean, why is that that the sleepy Joe Biden thing, um, you know, didn't work when Trump ran against him the first time, but seems to be, you know, sort of taking hold now?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, Biden has not had a kind of visible uh, health problem like Mitch McConnell, he hasn't uh, had any kind of dramatic diminution, but I would say that he has had a very visible four years worth of aging since since the last four years. Yeah. But certainly, uh, Biden looks his age at this point. He is not a young looking eighty, uh, and uh, Americans have an idea, I guess, of what leadership constitutes. And you know, it is interesting because actually, they they d- conducted surveys in 2020, in which they asked the question about age. And at that time, Biden had an advantage, at least in some of the polls, over Trump. So it was actually seen that hmm. that Trump was the person for whom age was the bigger liability. I guess my view, it's impossible to know, of course, is that, you know, with with Trump, in part, we're looking at a kind of a a hierarchy of problems uh, question here. I, I suspect that it's not so much that voters don't think that Trump's age is a problem. He is, after all, 77 years old. And were he to be elected instead of Biden in 2024, he would be the oldest president in American history, except for Joe Biden. So I- don't think voters think that Trump is young and fit and, and healthy and up to the job as much as they have bigger concerns. His untruthfulness, his alleged criminality, his attacks on the American constitutional system, uh, concerns that um, are very much the case not only for Democrats but many independents as well about his mental health and stability. And so, uh, you know, it's more a question of like what pick your poison, I think, with, with Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, I could almost imagine us talking a lot more about his age were it not for the fact that Trump is facing, you know, four trials now and that's sort of become the the focus of the news cycle. I mean, one thing I've been wondering about is whether Trump also just does a better job of like omitting like a, a certain kind of youthfulness or just kind of like playing the part Um, I mean, I I wonder if it has something to do with like his sort of level of aggression, too, and the way that he's so active on social media and almost um, can give the appearance of someone um, who's young, despite the fact that he is obviously quite old.
1: Yeah, I think aggression is probably uh, is a good word for Trump's overall public persona. There's no scenario in which he comes across as young, but there definitely is, I think, a lot of effort that goes in on Trump's part to projecting a certain aura of strength and toughness and, you know, kind of overall vigor. Now, it's interesting because he's not only a very visibly aging 77-year-old guy, he's even a lot bigger than he was uh, four years ago. Remember, there was, <laughs> I think, a, a kind of considerable uh, national bemusement when he was booked on his charges in Fulton County and self-reported his uh, height and weight as 6'3 and 215 pounds if uh, – uh, you haven't seen some of these amazing photographs that are circulating on social media of famous athletes who were 215 pounds and six foot I was going to say,
0: that sounds like a D1 athlete, not Oh my God, we're talking Trump. like,
1: you know, Muhammad Ali in his prime <laughs> and, you know, some of uh, like really famous football players and stuff. And there's just no way that that's accurate. The other thing I would flag for people is, it seems pretty clear to me that Donald Trump has had very significant most likely age-related uh, diminution in, you know, some of his abilities to to speak and to present things. If you compare interviews that Donald Trump did, you know, back in his sort of heyday in New York in the, you know, oh, 1980s yeah. and 1990s. I was watching an
0: Oprah interview the other day. It's like not only is he just so much more coherent and with it, but also it's it's like he doesn't even have the same voice anymore.
1: Does't have the same voice, and he has a dramatically constrained vocabulary, which is really notable now he has trouble even finishing a sentence in any grammatical form. I mean, I I think we spent something like three and a half hours total with him in Mar-a-Lago over the course of our two interviews. You would be hard pressed to find a single sentence in those three and a half hours that was diagrammable, you know, that was a noun and a verb and a period at the end of a sentence. And he really struggles to speak. In fact, even if you compare his campaigning from 2016 to 2020 to 2024, you would just see an absolute, you know, downward slope decline in terms of his ability to present himself. And I would also flag for people that even though, again, he he worked very hard to present this image of you know kind of vigor and, and toughness, he's been very sparing with his campaign appearances so far in 2024. Uh, just exactly the thing that he was mocking Joe Biden about in 2020. But actually, someone pointed out the other day, he has not made a single campaign appearance in three weeks. And yet, we must say, you have a Republican electorate that's so attached to this man that his poll numbers continue and his lead over the rest of the Republican field continues to go up, even when he doesn't show up in person, even when he doesn't go to the debate, even when he's indicted four times, he goes up in that Republican field. So...
0: You know, how do you think that we got here? You know, I I just keep thinking about how, you know, Barack Obama was 47 when he became president in 2009. And now we have a president who's 80, who's running against a former president who is 77. And we have a Senate where the median age is 65, which is a record high, I believe. Um, You know, how do we go from Obama to our leaders being like historically old?
1: I know, right? America, the gerontocracy, it just doesn't have... (laughs) You know, the ring to it. And, you know, it also conflicts, I think, with historically part of what has been the American self image, which, right, which is this country of sort of the future and vigor and moving forward. Certainly in the wake of World War II, I think that was the, you know, the kind of notion that we carried away from, from victory. And that was that we were going to press ahead toward the future. And, you know, we weren't around for JFK, but I was there for Bill Clinton. I was just speaking the other day, actually, with someone who worked in in Bill Clinton's White House. He was 46 years old, I believe, when he was inaugurated after winning the 1992 election. And this person who was a, a, a national security aide to Clinton, you know, early in his career was telling me how, you know, they would go on these foreign trips, which are very grueling. And at the end of the night, you know, Bill Clinton would literally bound into the staff quarters and be like, OK, you know, I'm ready to, you know, go over the next day's thing. I'm ready to, you know, talk some more. I'm ready to do this. Bill Clinton was famous, in fact, for calling random senators late at night, like 11, 12 at night, you know, wanting to shoot uh, the shit with them. And, you know, so it's obviously just a completely— different uh, and almost unsettling political moment. I think it's part of an overall feeling that, uh, you know, the American political system just isn't working the same way that that it used to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been wondering whether our aging leadership can maybe be attributed to an aging electorate. I was reading that people aged 65 and up sort of form the biggest voting block in most states. And so I just wonder if people are voting for people who sort of resemble themselves in age and in fitness. And if that's part of what we're seeing here, or if people just don't care about age when they're (laughs) assessing candidates.
1: Well, look, you certainly are seeing that overall, the longevity of the American electorate has extended, right? Like life expectancy has has more or less gone up. And also we're seeing the aging of the baby boom generation. Uh, Think about it this way. In addition to Joe Biden, who was born during World War II. We've had three recent presidents who were all born at the very beginning of the baby boom. In fact, in the very same summer, people forget this, but Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and actually Donald Trump were all born in the same year, (laughs) in the summer of 1946. You know, there's not a single other year other than 1946 that we, you know, can't have a president from. It's just that Bill Clinton was elected when he was very young and Donald Trump was then elected when he was on the old. But they're end. all peers. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> I mean, basically, you know, it's it's just that that generation in some ways has retained its chokehold over American political power. You know, the Gen Xers like me, you know, uh, don't seem like they're ever going to come into their moment. You know, millennials are a, a bigger generation and now we have Generation Z also in the workplace. So who knows, uh, when, when the chokehold of the, the boomers and, and before will finally be broken. Um, look, younger people have always voted in relatively lower percentages than older people. That's, that's been a political fact in American life for quite some time. But, You know, in many ways, in fact, the election, once again, could turn on whether or not Democrats who have a disproportionate share of support from younger voters, whether they can maintain the enthusiasm of those voters who actually have voted. uh, And you've seen a bit of an uptick in recent elections as the stakes have gone up. But, you know, younger voters are not wild uh, about Joe Biden. They're not wild about the prospect of having an 80-year-old president who, by the way, if Biden is reelected. Forget about how old he would be at the beginning of his second term. He would be 86 years old at the end of his second term. That's unsettling to to many different cohorts of Americans.
0: Thank you so much for that, Susan. We're going to take a quick break. We'll have more with Susan Glasser on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute.
1: Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount.
0: So you mentioned that younger voters aren't super excited about Biden, but they were excited about Bernie, who is now 81. So I guess when we talk about age being an an issue, I mean, do you think that the main problem is the possibility of a politician like getting sick or dying during their term? Or do you think that it's more about these leaders seeming out of touch and that there's a version of Biden that, you know, with the right policies or the right kind of campaigning mode could avoid all the discourse about how old he is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Of course. You don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, right? Like everybody ages differently. Everybody is connected or not connected with uh, younger people's concerns differently, right? So there's nothing inherent in the age that uh, says that he's going to be out of touch with younger people today. But, you know, different groups have different kinds of concerns, probably, about President Biden. And when it comes to the age issue, for many Democrats and probably for many independents, the biggest issue is not Biden's health in and of itself, but the risk factor that even inadvertently that could contribute to Donald Trump being reelected. It increases yeah. the risks in the election. And, and you know, that's the kind of scenario that I was writing about that I'm concerned, as I'm sure many people are, that if Biden has a Mitch McConnell moment, what if that happens late in the 2024 campaign? Imagine a scenario uh, where, he, you know, Biden has a fall going into a fundraiser as McConnell did. He gets a concussion. He freezes up in a debate with Donald Trump. He freezes up in a press conference, let's just say in October of 2024, when it's too late yeah. to do anything about it. And so even though by the numbers, it's it's very unlikely that Donald Trump, who having already lost two popular elections, both in 2016 and 2020, that he is suddenly going to command uh, support from millions of Americans who didn't support him previously, even though that's very unlikely— American national elections are, are jump balls. It's a very divided country. The polls so far have been very clear uh, that, you know, Republicans more or less are supporting Trump and Democrats are supporting Biden. But, you know, that brings it down to a small handful of battleground states in which any number of small factors could contribute arguably. Look, this is a risk factor.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a growing fear among Democrats that Biden is going to experience, I think, what you called a, a McConnell moment, especially like on the debate stage with Trump, um, just like in a very public kind of embarrassing way. I guess I, I'm just wondering, I mean, this is it's something that Democrats are worried about. And yet it's not as though there has been, you know, a ton of Rhetoric coming out of the party or at least coming from Democratic politicians about, well, we need to find someone else to run or Biden should just be a one term president. I mean, it also seems like people, for the most part, are rallying around Biden um, because he's seen as the person who has the best chance of beating Trump despite his age. So I, I guess I'm wondering if you think that we're handling this situation in the right way, whether there should have been more talk, you know, earlier on about um other potential candidates or whether Biden himself should have done a better job of uplifting people like Kamala Harris. Like, I've been wondering, too, just sort of how much of this is on Biden not kind of lining up a successor and whether that's something we should even expect of politicians to think about. I mean, this isn't like a monarchy. So, um, you know, not really supposed to groom people in that way. But at the same time, aren't you sort of (laughs) if you have all these people in your administration and you know that you are 80 and um, that people are worried about your age? And it just seems like it has to be something that was on his mind.
1: Well, look, I think you're right. The decision has been made uh, and his announcement that he was seeking a second term has cleared the field for now of any serious challengers to him. So, you know, the hour is very late if Biden is going to change his mind and to step aside. Uh, you know, he's only got a very short window this fall to do that and still have a robust open primary to follow him. I think it is pretty clear that the party would not just automatically coalesce around Kamala Harris if that were to be the case and Biden were to step aside. I think you'd see a number of other candidates, in addition to the vice president, who would jump into that. But again, the hour is late. Democrats have largely accepted Biden's decision that he's running again. Uh, You know, the party is getting behind that and focusing in many ways on how to defeat Donald Trump, who they do view as the the very likely nominee. Um, But, you know, nothing is a foregone conclusion at this moment in time. I mean, that's the thing. There's so much uncertainty embedded into American politics between having uh, President Biden and these extreme unpopularity uh, that he is facing. He is now consistently either the most unpopular president at this point in his presidency or the second most unpopular president at this point in his presidency, aside from Donald Trump ever. It reflects not only the deep polarization in the country, but I think ongoing concerns from many Americans, again, including Democrats and independents about his his age to continue on. And so it's a very volatile time. I I would say nothing is a given. uh, And, uh, you know, maybe Events will surprise us, uh, if not totally shock us this fall, and Biden won't end up running again. But it does kind of feel like, in general, we're just kind of waiting once again for some sort of external force uh, offstage yeah. to come in and interrupt this play and say, hey, wait a minute, America, this is all kind of too crazy, and we're going to, you know, like solve this problem for you.
0: Yeah, I feel like we've all been waiting for that for a while in the past two presidencies, honestly. Um I want to talk about Senator Diane Feinstein, who you mentioned earlier, because I think um in some ways I, I understand the Biden situation. It's like you have a president who is old um and people are worried about his age, but he is intent on running again, and he is the only person who has successfully beaten Trump. But with someone like Feinstein, who is ninety, as you mentioned, um, she's a California Democrat. In 2020, when Jane Mayer wrote about her for The New Yorker, um, just sort of writing about her declining cognitive health and memory and how this was an open secret in the Senate for many years, I was just surprised that there wasn't more of a push immediately after that piece to do something about it. And then, you know, more recently, there was this long period where Feinstein, because of her health setbacks, was absent from the Senate, and that was holding up judicial confirmations. And so this was something that was um, not only sort of optically an issue, but it was actively getting in the way of the Democrats' agenda. And I think there's only been one Democrat in Congress, um, Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota, who has called for her to step down. Again, Feinstein is a Democrat in California. It seems obvious to me that if she were to step down, she'd be replaced by another Democrat. Democrat. So why is there not more of an effort to get her to step down? I mean, are we just being, you know, respectful of our elders or like what is what's the deal here?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's certainly an important point. Uh, And what I would say is it's been a pretty painful and and drawn out spectacle involving Feinstein as well. The difference is that she's not the commander in chief. She's not the president of the United States. And uh, there are as you said, many other options. Whereas one of the risk factors for the Democratic Party is that it's not clear what their other option is that's, uh, you know, as close as they can come to a surefire winner against the nearly existential threat of Donald Trump returning to the White House, right? So the stakes are way different. Whatever you think about the importance of the Senate, the stakes are way different in the issue involving President Biden than they are with Diane Feinstein. And there is, I have to say, a long uh, and not necessarily distinguished tradition of senators staying in the Senate long past the point at which uh, many people think they should have made a graceful exit you know the stakes are just a lot lower uh, you know in the end you have advisors in your Senate office they can tell you how to vote and it's regrettable but it's not necessarily uh, consequential in a, in a very significant way to to the fate of the nation and I do think that a lot of Democrats are increasingly uncomfortable with Feinstein remaining in the Senate you know, it's it's an awkward spectacle. And I just think it tends to reinforce this narrative right now about the gerontocracy in Washington. And that's why we have Nikki Haley lumping together Dianne Feinstein, Joe Biden, and Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of her own party in the Senate.
0: One thing you mentioned that I, I want to go back to is um, just this idea that, you know, there's sort of confidence either among others in Congress or um, just like among the voters that Feinstein, despite her um, declining cognitive abilities, is surrounded by the right people who will basically just sort of um, keep everything in motion and kind of tell her the right way to vote. Like, there isn't going to be a, a massive implosion because she has, you know, a staff. And it just makes me wonder about, like, whether you think that the role of politicians has changed at all, especially people in the Senate. Like, if these figures who used to sort of be known for giving rousing speeches and um, coming up with, like, innovative policy ideas, whether they really have just turned into people who are expected to vote in a certain way and whether that's the kind of thing that has almost facilitated gerontocracy in America is this idea that you just want someone with name recognition who you can trust to vote in a certain way, who isn't going to surprise you, and you can kind of guarantee that if, um, you know, they've been in office for a long time and if they have, you know, the same set of aides that they've had for a decade. Hmm.
1: Well, is this an interesting observation. I mean, look, there's always been a- an enormous advantage to incumbency, especially in the Senate where they're running statewide and especially a a state like California. Right. Uh, That's, uh, you know, an enormous task. And, you know, Feinstein, she was just an absolute rock star when she was first elected to the Senate. This was a very historic thing. She and Barbara Boxer uh, became, you know, this sort of dynamic duo, the first all-female delegation in in California's history to the Senate. Feinstein had been the the first female mayor of San Francisco. She had been a really significant breakthrough figure, I think, for for women in politics in the country. Uh, That was decades ago, but she's remained a household name. It's very hard to break through in our kind of celebrified politics in the situation where having access to the media is is so difficult and now of course with the fragmenting of the media made it even harder to become a universal household name. So I think I think there's something to that observation but you know the extreme polarization in our politics has has been going on, you know, sort of in parallel And almost simultaneously for the last few decades with uh, the increasing celebrity culture that has infused the politics. So, you know, back when Feinstein was first elected to the Senate in the early 1990s, there were far more senators who represented states that had been won by a presidential candidate from a different party. We are now down to a mere handful uh, of those in the U.S. Senate. And I believe it's only 18 or so members in the House of Representatives who have been elected from uh, districts that went the other way in the presidential election. We are dealing with a kind of nationalized, polarized politics. And I I think it's right to see this phenomenon uh, in that context.
0: You know, when we talk about gerontocracy, I wonder if things are actually better in the House of Representatives than they are in the Senate. Like, I was thinking about how the the top three leaders in the House, like Nancy Pelosi, who's 83— And Jim Clyburn, who I think is also 83, um, you know, they recently stepped aside for a younger generation of leadership. You know, people like Hakeem Jeffries, who's 52. Is there... A sort of a different culture there, or do you think that there was, um, that Pelosi and Clyburn were, were responding to political pressure? You know, we keep talking about all of these senators who won't step aside, but you know, we've seen in the house that there is a, um, a precedent of doing something like this.
1: Yeah, well, look, I mean, we would have been having the same conversation, uh, and including Pelosi potentially in it just, you know, just a couple years ago. So, you know, she had yeah. a remarkable. Run, uh, you know, at the top of the Democratic caucus in the House, including not one, but two different tours as House Speaker, you know, which would tend to reinforce the idea that it's been harder and harder to have change and turnover at the top of our political parties uh, in recent decades. But it's also a reminder now that Pelosi stepped aside. By the way, it's interesting to note she stepped aside as Speaker, but she remains a member of the House of Representatives. I don't believe we've heard yeah. from her yet whether she plans to run for another two-year term for re-election or not. But, um, you know, turnover has been much higher in the House in recent uh, years than it has been in the U.S. Senate. You know, it's, it's more of a young person's job to be a congressperson than it has been to be a U.S. senator in recent years. Do you
0: think that it's time to start talking about age limits for politicians. I mean, I understand that this would require a constitutional amendment, that the same thing sort of preventing term limits also like implicitly um, sort of prevents setting age limits. Um, but I've been wondering whether there could ever be enough political momentum for this kind of thing or whether um, probably not because it would have to be the politicians themselves who are, um, you know, kind of moving, moving forward with this. Like you would need an entirely new generation of, uh, of um, politicians sort of um, ushering this kind of thing forward.
1: Well, color me skeptical. I'll tell you this. If you want to see real political, massive political change in this country, try to mobilize young people to vote in the same uh, numbers and in the same percentages as their elders. And then you would see some big political changes in the country. But uh, historically, it's been the case, and it's still the case, that they don't vote in numbers to wield their power, the power that they have by virtue of having the vote. And remember, it was an enormous political uh, change in this country just to go from a 21-year-old national voting age to an 18-year-old national voting age yeah. which is something that happened as a result of massive public political pressure during the Vietnam war because for people it was just absolutely unsustainable the idea that you could draft somebody's son to go to war and to fight and die on behalf of the United States and that young man was still not eligible to vote in his country. And so that led to an enormous change in the country. It led to the 18-year-old vote. But ever since then, 18-year-olds have not voted in anywhere near the numbers uh, uh, that their elders have voted. So if you want an earthquake of a political change, including far fewer older politicians, the way to go is probably just to get people to exercise the right they already have to vote.
0: Do you see this happening anytime soon? I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, regardless of whether Biden or Trump wins again, you know, we're going to have a president who, as you say, is basically historically old. And then after that, you know, there's going to be an election that presumably involves neither of them. And, you know, I'm just kind of wondering what's next, like whether we need an Obama-like candidate who will bring those young voters out or whether we're going to continue seeing aging leaders run for, you know, the highest office in the United States?
1: Look, I think that there is a perception that the stakes have been going up and up in American elections. Uh, that is one consequence of the Trump era ongoing in American politics. I mean, you know, look, we've never before in all of our hundreds of years of history as as a republic, we've never before had a president who sought to overturn the legitimate results of an election and to remain in power. That is a profound test of our political system, is a profound test of our Constitution. And, you know, the fact that he has support from nearly half of the American electorate still after all of that suggests that the stakes are very, very high. One consequence of that has actually been to drive up turnout in recent elections relative to the overall trend of decline had been happening before that and so you know i think that that as people perceive the stakes and they perceive it in their urgent self-interest to preserve this democracy they'll show up at the polls so i don't think that anything is is forever you know i think that um you know these rapid changes inside the country, have suggested that it's not forever. Well, you and I certainly would not have believed that we would be having this conversation, yeah. you know, seven, eight, 10 years ago, right? So nothing lasts forever. And maybe 10 years from now, we'll be talking about how many, you know, 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds there are in our politics and do we really have the level of, of experience that we need uh, in order to get things done in The world grass affairs. is always greener, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Susan. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it was great to speak with you. Thank you. Susan Glasser is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read her piece, The Twilight of Mitch McConnell and The Spectre of 2024, online now. You can also hear Susan, along with Jane Mayer and Evan Osnos, discussing the biggest news out of Washington every Friday in this feed. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Steven Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown.